Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, we're back. Another, another Ash Wednesday, Joe. Hey, real quick, can you throw up the other slide? I have to talk about it. You already did, but we won the Super Bowl. <laughs> this is what I keep trying to explain to my kids. Maybe you don't understand this. You're a little older than my kids, but you're not that old. This is not normal. I grew up in the 90s, uh, watched the Chiefs play all the time. I just tell my kids, like, we never went to a Super Bowl. We never went to one. We went to one AFC championship game in the 90s, and we lost to the freaking Buffalo Bills, which is why I don't feel bad for anything that happens to them now. But, like, my kids are like, well, ever since in my, in my conscious memory, Graham, the last time the Chiefs weren't in an AFC championship game, he was three years old. So for those of you who are, like, fans of sports, and if you're from Missouri or Kansas City and you like the Chiefs, just hear me tell you, soak it all in and don't take it for granted because this is ridiculous. We won the Cosmic Lottery. We have the greatest football player who's ever played the game, and... This is just crazy. It's true. That's a fact. Okay, next. We can be done. I'm not going to talk about the Chiefs anymore except for probably one time. This, it's Ash Wednesday. Dust to dust to dust to dust. We're back, farther back, further back, ahead, further ahead, or Ash Valentine's Day. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you. Here you are. That's you. Today is Ash Wednesday and also Valentine's Day. Both days designed to impress upon us the futility of all of our efforts and remind us that in the end we will be dead and utterly alone. That's the only Valentine's joke I'm gonna make, I promise. Ash Wednesday, you're right here. You're right there. 44 days from now is Good Friday. Uh, we're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians for tonight. We'll get back to it on Sunday because it's Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of Lent. To set the record straight, for those of you who don't know, Lent is the time between Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Just curious, like, who grew up in a church setting where you guys observed Lent, um, where, like, you knew what Ash Wednesday was or Good Friday, like, where this was a thing in your house? I didn't. I grew up in, like, a charismatic church. We didn't touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole. Um, so, so Lent goes from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday, and technically this is 44 days, but we talk about the 40 days of Lent symbolically. It, it echoes Jesus' time in the wilderness and many other things in the scriptures. Um, the way you actually get to 40, I'm just giving you a little history here, is you, you subtract the four Easter's that happen, uh, and four, four Sundays that are mini Easter's is what I was going to say. Thank you. Because it's like a preview of the feast that is coming. So is anybody going to fast anything for Lent? Maybe. You don't have to tell me what it is, but I, you can, if you want to, I don't want to cause you to stumble or anything, but you can kind of relax your fast on Sundays if you like. Or you can be hardcore and just like give it up completely all the way. But you can relax your fast. No, you really, you can. Um, so anyway, that's, that's your little Lent lesson, um, the Lent owner's manual. But here you are, getting ready to cross the street of Lent on the way to Easter. And Ash Wednesday is your invitation to look both ways 
before you cross that street. And it's worth taking the time to do it. It's worth taking the time to think about and take in these days and these seasons. Easter, I'm sure you guys know about Easter, probably celebrated Easter in some way or another. One of the highest, holiest days, maybe the highest and holiest day of the Christian year. It's when, of course, we celebrate that death, despite its best efforts, could not keep Jesus down and that he rose. And when he rose with him, an abundance and newness of life just came exploding out like a fireworks show. But as other people have noted, uh, feasting, it's not really that fun when it's all you do. Like if you're only ever just like going along normally, eating everything you want, drinking everything you want, watching every show you want, like feasting falls a little flat then because you're kind of always running like at this level. We need rhythms. We need rhythms of fasting and feasting. We need rhythms of like being solemn and also having jubilation so that it brings more depth like to the experience of all of it. And so that's what Lent is for. It is to prepare us for the insane joy that is supposed to be Easter Sunday to just make it something more than just like a nice ham dinner. I personally, like I want to experience the depth of like what these times and what these days have to offer us. Um, I want to soak in the meaning and be changed by the significance of these days. And I find that for me, at least, it works a lot better uh, when I actually spend the time going through the season and anticipating and preparing, preparing for a time that is coming. That's what Lent is for. That's what Advent is for. So today is day one, Ash Wednesday, when the priest or the preacher or whichever holy person it is tells you, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Have you heard this before? And they take the ash and they put it in the shape of the cross on your forehead. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. It is another way of telling you on this singular day to look both directions in time, to look into the past and into the future as you begin the long trek toward the holiest weekend of the Christian year. Remember where you come from. Remember where you're going. Remember that you are dust. To dust you will return. Um, so these words, they're actually a direct quotation from Genesis 3. You can see it up there. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Are you guys, you guys know this story? It's a familiar story. We hear about Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, and how they listened to a voice other than the voice of God, and they trusted that voice instead of the voice of God, and the results were as tragic as they are familiar. After they ate the fruit, the story goes, the sound of God walking in the cool of the day, this sound that used to be such a comfort to them, instead sent them running for cover. And in the story, God asked after the man, where are you? And the man said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. This isn't just a story about them. This is a story about us. Who among us hasn't done things in life that they wish they could undo? Who among us hasn't looked in the mirror and felt something like regret? Naked, afraid, 
and hiding all of us. We all know what it is like to experience shame and then to let that shame make us afraid of what God or what someone else might think if they found out. And then we let that shame and the fear push us into hiding. We don't show who we are to God, to others, not letting ourselves be known, not really knowing anyone else. The gospel is bad news before it's good news, says Frederick Buechner. The news that we are sinners, evil in the imaginations of our hearts, God help us. And I say this to you, you are a sinner, and me too. I say it not to be mean, not to pile on shame, not to like be the tough guy who's going to tell you the truth about yourself as a way of like denouncing a culture that's just coddling you and giving you too much self-esteem. I, I say it simply to tell you that it is a part of the truth. It's a part of the truth. You are. Confession is cleansing to cut out the delusions and the wishful thinking that we have about ourselves and, and instead to soberly acknowledge our sin, to soberly acknowledge that it has consequences. Maybe some that we didn't intend, things got out of hand and that thing I did ended up making this other thing happen and that's not what I wanted. God help me. But just to acknowledge that. And to acknowledge that is, I think, to die to it in a way. The last I checked, dying is a prerequisite for resurrection. So in some way then, as we acknowledge the ash that is our sin, Ash Wednesday is a prerequisite for Easter. Like the people who put this calendar together, they were smart. They knew what they were doing. God's response to all of this in Genesis 3 and to our own lives was and is, in his wisdom and mercy, to send them away from the garden. But not before pronouncing these famous words, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Which, from a certain point of view, could seem like adding insult to injury. So, when the reverend, or whoever it is, pronounces these uh, words, on Ash Wednesday, he is first inviting you to consider uh, that you are wayward, that you are estranged, sinful. That is part of what it means to remember that you are dust. It's fitting to do this on a day uh, that is a day of confession and repentance. Frederick Buechner, again, he said, it can be a pretty depressing business, <laughs> Ash Wednesday and Lent. It can be a pretty depressing business, after all, but if sackcloth and ashes are at the start of it, something like Easter may be at the end. So, if something like Easter is waiting for us 46 days from now, let's not short-circuit the process, folks. Let's just start here and remember where we come from it's hard 
But there are worse things that we could do than to acknowledge that, yes, we have listened to this voice of this serpent, and yes, we have eaten the fruit, and yes, we have caused all manner of damage in our own selves and in the lives around us. So I want to give you just like 30 seconds to silently, to yourself, acknowledge these things. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. It's also a quote from Ecclesiastes. As one dies, so dies the other, it says. All have the same breath, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. And so, this look at death in the face is also an invitation to look forward in time as well as backward. How many of your grandparents can you name? Okay, how about your great-grandparents? How many of your great-grandparents can you name? How many generations do you have to go back before you can't name them all? Maybe that one. How many, maybe three generations from yourself? How many before you can't name any of them? Maybe the same, maybe one more, four? This is my family Bible. It is 179 years old. That's a real number. In between the testaments, there is the family history. It's the newspaper article from the day my grandfather was killed in the car wreck. Graham. Here he is. He's the most recent name on the list. You go back. You go back. You go back. This goes to 1806 when somebody who is my grandfather ugh, was born. All the generations, who was born, who they married, who their kids were, whether they got divorced, where they lived. My seventh great-grandfather, who's not actually in this book, I had to look him up, he was named John Dent. <laughs> You're going to have to believe me on that one. But he was, and he was born 350 years ago in 1674 in St. Mary's County, Maryland. John Dent. He was 59 when he died, not 59 yet. Without him, without John Dent, I do not exist. But those few facts, his name, the year of his birth, the county where he was born, that he died at 59, those are the only things I know about him, which also happens to be exactly what his gravestone knows about him. But this was a man who was my grandfather, and he had a family. He had a life. He worked, I'm sure, and he did things that became stories, like when you took a cool road trip over Christmas break with your college friends, and you're like, this moment's going to live forever. Like he went to parties and he ate meals and he probably went fishing and 
Who knows what else? He had a life and he did things, but I don't know any of them. And neither does anyone else. And the thing is that I can't do really any better with my second great-grandfather, Thomas, who's only been gone 112 years now. He died in 1912. I don't know anything about him. Without these people whose stories we don't know, we wouldn't exist. You wouldn't be you without your second great-grandfather. Without their families and lives, which become our families and our lives, we would be nothing. And yet we can't even name them. Barely a century passes, and they're only a name on a gravestone. Now, friends, turn the mirror to yourself. Do you think it will be any different for you when you are someone else's great, 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 great grandparent? Here's the bleak truth for pretty much all of us. We will die and barely a century will pass and we will be nothing more than a name on a gravestone. Not even the memory of you will be left. I remember Derek telling me how after his father-in-law, Dave, his father-in-law was a preacher in life, he died. And Derek, after his death, spent an evening with the many bound volumes. He, Dave was, I don't know, he was cool because he, he had bound volumes of all of his sermons, like a library. And Derek took all of those bound volumes and he went into his backyard and he started a fire and he burned them all. <laughs> I am a preacher. As someone who spends much time and energy fussing over words and sermons, I still have a copy of every manuscript of every sermon I've ever preached. This gave me anxiety. What? Are my kids going to do the same? Are they going to like sit out back and take all of my sermons? Are they going to burn them all? And even if they don't, and these sermons continue to like exist somewhere, will it matter? Will it matter in 350 years? Because 350 years sounds fictional, but it's coming. Everything is going to burn. Everything. Dave's sermons, my sermons, to dust, it all goes. This campus ministry, CCF, has been around since 1977. It will not be here forever. This freaking university, this country, the chief's dynasty, maybe. Maybe. That was the only other chief's joke, I promise, that's it. No, but listen to me. It's all going to burn. Your 401k that you're going to work so hard for, all of the promotions that you get at the jobs that you have, the things that you buy, the vacations you go on, the photographs you take on those vacation, vacations, even the memories of our lives will not last. In the end, dust. Dust is all that will be left of you. 
Sometimes it's three years. Sometimes it's 365 years. But they come, they go, they rise, they fall, they're born, they pass away. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return is another way of telling you to remember that you and what you do will not last forever. Ooh. <laughs> Ease up, Reed. Okay. All right. Here's the thing. This invitation to remember your impermanence can either be severely despair-inducing or it can be incredibly liberating. It kind of depends what you expected in the first place. And friends, here's where our great American culture of like triumph and victory and product and winning is really setting you up to fail because it makes you think that like the value of a life well lived consists in doing something that's going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. So if we had illusions that what gives our lives value and purpose is like longevity or accomplishments or memorability, this message of Ecclesiastes is going to cause you some despair because you're not going to have it. You're not going to be remembered. Your accomplishments aren't going to amount to anything. Man, that feels good to say. You will not have longevity. But if we trust that all of this is in God's hands, hands that span the generations, that go back well before my seventh great-grandfather and go well after me, hands that span the generations and they cause all things, great and small, to come together for whatever his good purpose is in his own time, which we don't, we cannot fathom. But if we trust that, whether the individual components of that endure or not, like CCF plays a part in that, but it's not gonna be around forever. Whether or not CCF is here doesn't matter. If we trust that this is for whatever God is working out, okay, then we're free. So, whew. Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, as we start this long trek toward Easter, we have the opportunity to look, I'm giving you the opportunity right now to look without flinching at the fact that the movement is of your life is in some measure, it's a movement, there goes my marker, from waywardness and estrangedness, estrangement and sin to death. Anybody feeling uplifted? That is not the end of the meaning, though. I have more news for you. Not the end of the meaning of dust for us. So while there is a necessity and a sobering connection between this idea of dust and coming to grips with our own sin and our own mortality, the call to remember that you are dust and to dust you will return is a call to look still even further back and still even further forward in time. Dust, that we read about in Genesis 3, it's not inherently bad or tragic in the scripture. It's not originally tragic. It wasn't that way in the very beginning. Actually, the first time that we hear about dust in the scriptures, it's actually not at the curse, the so-called curse. Talk to me about that later. When we had to leave the garden, dust has its scriptural beginnings, not in consequence, but in creation. Before dust is a reminder to us of the exile from the garden in Genesis 3, it is a reminder that we are created things. 
constructed intimately by God, as we are told in Genesis 2, which comes before 3, if you weren't counting. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God stoops down into the stuff of the world, and he takes the dust of egg and sperm and DNA and mitosis and amniotic fluid and all of that, and he breathes into it his very spirit. This is true for all of us, okay? This is not just this guy from this Bible story way back then. This is the truth for all of us. You are breathed into like this. And I imagine God as close as my son and me when we share a pillow at bedtime, when we're recapping the day or when we're reading stories. So close that he's turning into like a cyclops and he's only got one eye in my vision. And you can feel the air that is shared back and forth as we breathe and breathe and breathe. That is the care, I imagine, that God gives the dust that becomes you. So when God tells the man who is on the verge of being pushed out into the world to remember that he is dust in Genesis 3, remember you are dust, is it, is it possible that these words are, above all, words of comfort? It's not adding insult to injury. We tend to hear them as like tinged with this like kind of this threat. Remember, you are doomed because of your sin is kind of how we hear this as they're sent out of the garden. But can we hear them another way? Remember, you are dust can be a way of saying, I imagine, as you experience exile in this place where you're going to go out into the world a world where it's going to be away from me and there's going to be times where like you are lost and I am not able to be felt by you. You don't perceive me and you're out in the darkness and you're facing all the crap that is the world that is the result of this eating of the fruit and all of that. As you experience that, I need you to remember that in the beginning, you were freely created by me. You were dust that I breathed into me the God who is love itself and goodness itself. And so therefore you are beloved wherever you go and whatever happens, you are beloved. And so remember that you are dust is another way of saying that your beginning before this is in belovedness and purpose and goodness we perhaps have spent too much time believing that the story of us begins in Genesis 3 with the fall and the so-called curse with that dust. And I wonder if we've lost something precious by just lopping off the first two chapters of the Bible that are full of light and goodness and blessing and partnership and that dust. So here before our waywardness is our createdness and our belovedness. And I'm telling you, this is about you. And of course, that doesn't mean that we don't screw things up. 
It doesn't mean that we don't screw things up terribly and that things don't go horribly wrong. But it is, I think, that Beekner, forgive me, forgive me, slightly misspoke when he said the gospel is bad news before it's good news because the whole truth of it and what he must have meant to say is that the gospel is good news before it is bad news before it is good news. If when I remember that I am dust, I forget that I am dust breathed upon by the very Spirit of God, then it is very easy to fall into despair. And from dust to dust sounds like from sin to death and only ever that. Like I come from a wrecked family and so that's going to be my destiny. My kids are going to be wrecked because my parents wrecked me. Or I come from loneliness and I'm only ever going to be lonely. Or I come from being a cast out child who's going to be a parent who casts my children out from addiction to addiction to addiction and the cycle doesn't end in my family. And that's what I think when it's dust to dust, it's all futile. But those things, while they are real and while they are devastating, they are not the beginning. And they're not the end. Because remember that you are dust and to dust you will return is also an invitation finally to look ahead. Once more, further ahead. To the ultimate horizon. And to see that our breathy, dusty end is our beginning. And here's what I mean. Jesus died. We're going to talk about that in 44 days. Jesus died. This we know. No one disputes it. He, like everyone else, followed the path described in Ecclesiastes, and he died, returning to dust. The surprise twist, as previously stated, is that despite death's best efforts and intentions, it could not keep him. He rose, and you know what he did then? Because it doesn't end with just him being resurrected. You know what he did then? Early on the first day of the week, John tells us, while it was still dark, and I don't know, but if you're like me, like you gotta, if you're like thinking Bible stories, you hear first day of the week, you, hear, you start hearing numbers of days of the week being numbered, and you're like thinking, oh, like, that sounds like the, that sounds like the Genesis story. And in case we forgot, John says it again, and on the evening of the first day of the week, first day of the week, the first day of the week, Jesus said, peace be with you. He appears to his disciples and he says, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I am sending you out into the world, out into your future. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. I went to a charismatic church where they kind of took this a little liter literally and they did this weird thing where they would actually <sighs> like breathe on you. I don't know about all that. I think it kind of misses the point, even if it's well-intended. And that here, after the death and the resurrection, what's being recreated is the very first thing. These disciples who are dust are breathed into again. Like Jesus, we are going to die. We're all going to die. You are going to die. But maybe, just maybe, with a resurrected Christ now out in the world, maybe to dust you shall return at its furthest horizon means something more than one day you will die and you will go down and that will be all there is. Maybe you, like Jesus, will be raised. And like the disciples and like the first man in Genesis, you will be breathed upon. 
if John's story at the outset of this new week of creation in a new garden, that's another fun detail in the resurrection story, they supposed him to be the gardener. If that story about the recreating breath of Jesus is any indication, maybe the dust to which we will all return will also be the dust into which God will again breathe his very life. And if you've ever heard Derek read to you the four quartets, that in my end is my beginning, I'm telling you this is what it's about. So, at its furthest end, remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return, is a call to remember that your very end, your very end, beyond this horizon, it is the same. as your beginning. And all of this stuff is going to happen in the meantime. And we have to take stock of that and remember it on things like Ash Wednesday and seasons like Lent. All of that stuff right around you is happening. And there are horizons that go way before you and way after you that are not shaken, that are not changed, that you created anew are ever the beloved of God. In the end, dust is inescapable, friends. It really is what we come from. It really is where we're headed. Perhaps the question that we should be focused on is not how do I avoid thinking about this at all costs, which is what we usually tend to do, but whose breath, whose breath is animating this, giving the dust of your life, life, and purpose and value. Remember that you are dust. That though you are wayward and afraid and ashamed and hiding, you are created by a God who loves you and that after all, he does not forget that you are dust. Even if you forget, God doesn't forget. And so I'm finishing with this. When God remembers that you are dust, what it stirs up in him is not disappointment. It's not anger. It's this, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. Help us, Lord. Help us to hear. Help us to breathe. Help us to remember that your breath 
breath is what there is. Your breath is what is creating us and pushing us along. Help us uh, to live breathing freely in your spirit, not choking, suffocating on all of our own busted endeavors. Our lives are in your hands. Thank you, God. Thank you for your love that is immeasurable. Thank you for your compassion that in our dusty sinfulness, uh, your anger is for a moment, but it is your steadfast love that endures forever. <laughs>